The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here, and I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy at 40 Strategy. What we do is we provide strategic planning consulting to help organizations realize and achieve their dreams. Jill, basically what we do is we help companies and organizations create strategic plans and measure the right KPIs for success. A recent study showed that only 10% of organizations actually complete two-thirds of their strategic objectives. Don't you think that's pretty crazy? I do, indeed. <laughs> and so at 40 Strategy, your success is our passion. That's why organizations call on us to help. We found, and through Harvard Business Research, that if you actually focus on the right key performance indicators, you can triple the likelihood of your success. And who wouldn't want that? So email us today at catch at 40strategy.com or visit our website at 40strategy.com. And with that, um, we'd go to, like to go to our next part where we talk about one of our uh, shout out to Paul Slowey. Um, Paul Slowey is the CEO for Biomed Diagnostics, where their focus has been on saliva diagnostics to help cure and detect diseases. Paul is the person who referred our current guests. Uh, and thank you, Paul, for that. And that our current guest is Dr. Jill Marin. Um, Dr. Marin received her undergraduate degree from Harvard University and both her MD and MPH degrees from Tulane University. She completed her pediatric residency at Brown University and her fellowship in newborn medicine at Tufts Medical Center. She's a professor of pediatrics and obstetrics and gynecology at Tufts University School of Medicine, the executive director of the Mother Infant Research Institute at Tufts Medical Center, and the vice chair of pediatric research at Tufts Children Children's Hospital. She also serves as the co-editor-in-chief for the clinical therapeutics, for over 15 years, her research has focused on developing and integrating novel salivary and genetic diagnostic platforms into neonatal and maternal care for rapid assessment of development and pending morbidites and genetic disorders. She is internationally recognized for her contribution to the development of neonatal salivary diagnostic platforms and currently serves on as a multi-PI on three NIH-funded multi-center clinical trials. She has published extensively in the field. Jill is also a TEDx speaker on secrets I learned from the saliva of newborns. And I encourage you all to listen to that recording from March of 2009. And Jill, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Carl, for having me. And that was, that was a great introduction. So thank you. You're absolutely welcome. And it's truly a privilege to have you on. We had a very fun call when we were um, talking about coming onto the show a few months ago. And and so, first of all, for those who are who don't know about you, can you tell us a little bit more about your current role and what you do? Sure. So, from a clinical standpoint, I practice neonatology, which is caring for babies born very early or sick. 
So you could be born at term, but you are not well. But from a research standpoint, I try to develop assays or tasks that I can use in this patient population, which is very tiny, very vulnerable, um, and doesn't really have a lot of blood, for example, to give for diagnostic assays. So I focus my attention on saliva in large part because it's easy to get. The babies will always make more of it. And it actually is a wealth of information that we can learn, not just what's going on in the mouth of the baby, but really what's going on throughout the body, including their development. So really the focus of my career going on almost 20 plus years now has been, how do we utilize that biofluid? Bring it into the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, and impact and improve care. So I, I find this such a fascinating topic because so so historically prior to this, and I guess currently today, probably in most situations, how are people, how, how are doctors in neonatal care getting these diagnostics traditionally? Yeah, for the most part, everything is done in blood by and large. Uh, there are exceptions to that, but usually the caregiver does the clinical exam, looks at how the baby's doing, and then there are blood assays. And, and saliva will never fully replace all of blood assays. But there are certain things that we simply can't keep sticking a baby with a needle for, can't keep getting blood for, and we want serial assessment. We want to be able to look in real time several times a week to see, well, where are you today? Are you getting sick? Are you, can we predict neurodevelopmental problems? Um, what's the next challenge for us? And we need a different biofluid. And that's why my focus has really been in saliva. And so you're clearly on, on the forefront of this research of what's been taking place. How, how many other research institutes are doing something like this? And, and how much is this in practice today? Or is this still in the developmental stage? Well, I think we're definitely moving beyond the developmental stage, which is amazing. Uh, for Literally for decades, we could use saliva. Probably the most common thing we would look for is cortisol or that stress response. And we were doing that in everyone from babies to the elderly, but it was really limited. It was one protein. And when I entered the space, no one was really in it for babies. It was mostly more adults. And we didn't have an understanding of just how much information we could obtain from saliva. What's been even more remarkable is because I work with very tiny humans, some who only weigh a little over a pound, I'm working with a drop, literally a drop of saliva. And so what's happened in the field in the last, I would say, 15 years is we've gone from like a single protein to really we can look at hundreds, sometimes thousands of proteins or genes in one sample because the technology has evolved with us. And that's just created this enormous amount of power for us from a diagnostic standpoint. Concurrently, we had things like 23andMe and Ancestry.com pop up and the lay public was understanding I could spit in a tube at home, send it away, and all of a sudden I'm getting a report back that tells me who my relatives are, what my ethnic profile is, what health risks I'm at. Now, that's a little different. It's looking at DNA, but I think for the lay people, you understand, hey, all I had to do was spit and I got all that information. So in parallel, we had the public understanding the power of saliva. We had technology advancing so that we could do so much more with it. And then there was an eclectic but ever-growing group of us around the world that 
said, we can do so much in saliva. And we get together regularly uh, across literally the world. Right now it's still in Zoom, but um, from India to Europe to Australia to you know the United States, we meet and share ideas, platforms, troubleshoot, and are working very hard to bring this to the doctor's office and into the hospital. So from, from your research and what you see on a, on a practical basis, how much faster is the diagnostics of being able to use saliva, right? Versus, you know, how much quicker can things be picked up by using saliva versus traditional methods that may come up? Yeah, I think it's not, especially in my population, it's not so much the time turnaround, but it's the frequency with which I can assess. Uh, Again, getting back to the point of, well, I can't stick a baby every day to see where we are neurodevelopmentally today, but I sure can get saliva. That's not a problem. And, you know, infection is one area we work on. And I really can't keep sticking a baby four times a day to see, are you mounting a response to an infection? But I could get four drops of saliva. I could get 10 drops of saliva and I would never ever flick them. And there's where the power is more so than the turnover. Wow. Wow. And I, I can't, you, you went back and I've got four kids. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine a one pound. So how, what's the length of a one pound? They're tiny, tiny. Um, they can often just fit in your hand. They're so tiny. Um, there are all these pictures, you know, the dad takes off the ring and can split, you know, his wedding ring and put it all the way up the baby's arm. And, um, and those are the patients I think most worth fighting for. I think, you know, as much, as important as it is, we have it for adults, you know, you and I can tolerate a needle stick more than a baby can. So when I talk and I work and I write grants and papers about this, what drives me all the time is these babies really need this platform. Uh, and, and it's not just, we don't want to stick them with needles. We know from studies that the more pain you inflict, even something as simple as you think a needle stick, actually has a detrimental effect on their outcomes. Um, There are amazing studies, you know, even just to check their glucose levels, we often stick their heels. And when children have come back to us, they are so sensitive on their heels still years later that we know that there are costs to that. There are costs to doing it that way, even though it's what we have to do to take care of them. So to find a way around that, and not have to inflict that trauma on them is something that drives me every day, really. Hmm. Wow. So you, I, I have two questions. One is kind of on a personal side, and then one is on the research side. So you had you had this TEDx opportunity. Tell me what happened to you on on a business development understanding when when you went on that and you presented and you talked about this information. What type of feedback? You know, did it open a whole bunch of new doors that that people weren't aware and provided information? I'm kind of curious what happened to you on, on a personal yeah. side and from the research side when that took place. Yeah, so I think from a personal side, I would anyone who can do a TEDx talk, um, I highly encourage it. It really is about personal growth. And what, what TEDx really allowed me to do personally was to share my story, but a lot of introspection, a lot of looking in myself to really make sure the messaging was clear. And I was fortunate to work with an amazing woman, Gail O'Brien, who was sort of my life coach during the process, who continued to push me and I still um, communicate with today. And so what TEDx always wants you to do is to tell that story. 
but in such a meaningful and compelling way. And to get there, to get your words there is an it's a really important growth opportunity. Mm. From a professional standpoint, I wish more people will see it. And I keep hoping that more people will see it. it you know, I want everyone wants their TEDx to go viral. I didn't go viral yet. You can you can always go viral. Right. Uh, I just haven't done that yet. Uh, so I encourage everyone to to listen and, and watch. Um, but it allowed me to have that platform. And I think, and it's still online and anyone can watch. And it just was both an amazing opportunity for my own personal growth to tell the story. And I'm hopeful still that people will, will watch it and, and really get excited about what you can do in saliva. And I appreciate you sharing that personal side. And, and I, it's interesting. I do someday have a plan. I would love to you know, I, I don't think I've ever publicly said I'd, I'd love the opportunity myself to be able to do a TEDx. But what I think you said was pretty profound is is how you had to really look within mm-hmm. and a really try to find a way to get the message across clearly. But you probably have to. There's probably a lot of confidence that right you had to deal with of like, oh my gosh, this is big, and and I want to do the best job I can in 18 minutes or less, right. You know, to convey this message. Yeah. There's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of layers of challenge. And then ultimately, I mean, it's all memorized. You write every word, it's all memorized. And you go on, hit a stage with a thousand plus people on there and off you go. And uh, it's a great, great opportunity for growth. Mm. So that was in 2019, I believe is when that was recorded. What, what new findings since that period of time that have been uncovered that you didn't even know then or, or new research or, or give me some, give, give the audience some insights on the changes that have taken place. You know, in the talk, I mentioned um, we were aiming to develop a salivary diagnostic panel for infection, better way to determine if a baby was infection. And I was hanging uh, by a thread there was waiting for NIH and the National Institutes of Health to decide whether they were going to come in and fund it. And about six weeks later, they did, they decided we're going to go with this and since that time, we were able to launch a study across the country, and we've been collecting saliva. Our goal is 4,000 babies. We collect it every day across the country, and we're analyzing that. And even in our prelim analysis, and just to give you an idea what we're doing is, we if we think a baby's infected, we think a lot of babies could be infected because they can't talk to us. They can't say, I don't feel well today. So they do funny things like they may forget to breathe. Maybe they look a little pale, and we get worried. Because if we miss sepsis or an infection, they could die and they could die quickly. But what's happened here in our field is we actually overtreat. We give too many antibiotics. Most of these babies aren't infected. And again, this gets back to the point, well, how am I going to know? I can't stick them every day to see every you know, few hours to see if they're mounting a response to an infection. So we came in and said, let's get a drop of saliva. Let's do it serially. And we'll look at those inflammatory markers. Because if they're infected, they'll fight. They're going to fight. Even if you're born at a pound, you still will fight that infection. Mm. And what we're seeing early on is what we can do in one drop of saliva is measure six to eight of these inflammatory biomarkers. We can Mm. quantify it down to the molecule. And we're seeing really important patterns. Um, Sometimes the baby's born early because the mother's infected. And what we see with that baby comes out inflamed, but the baby actually isn't infected. So their markers go down in those first few hours. Conversely, if a baby is infected, they may start somewhat low, but then they skyrocket. And to be able to see that 
And to use that clinically could be so, so powerful for us. Um, and to do it in a drop of saliva and for that turnaround, that assay is a 45 minute turnaround to get all of that information. Wow. So, you know, we're about a year and a half now in, and at the end of this study, I'm very hopeful if the data hold true that we can start talking at the FDA level about, all right, what's our next step? How do we get this in there for these babies? Wow. That is, uh, I mean, considering this has been your lifelong work, right? You know, to get to here, this is going to be a pretty exciting moment that, you know, you're getting closer to that, to that point. So. Next part of how did you get here? You know, how did, how did you get to this point of what led you to this point in your career to focus on saliva, focus on neonatal babies? Um, g- give us a little bit of insight, which led you to your career in the first place. Yeah, I think it's been a journey and I love that part of it. And I love that I'm still on the journey. So and, and I love looking back in my life to get to your point, Carl, of how did I get here? So in college, I actually started to work with saliva. I was an anthropology major, and we were looking at a birth seasonality in Nepal of women. So it turned out these women in Nepal would only give birth certain times a year because the other years, they, the other times they were in the field, they were exerting all this energy and their ability to conceive was decreased. And we were trying to look at that at a hormonal level. So they would spit every day. And that saliva would get shipped to me in Cambridge, Mass. And we'd look at their hormones and I'd measure them. And so I, it was instilled in me, saliva is pretty powerful. I mean, you know, you can, it's stable. You can ship it from around the world. You can measure proteins. And then I underwent my medical training and ultimately went to NICU or neonatology. And it was there that I went back to saliva and said, God, if only we could do this for them. If only we could use this biofluid to not hurt him, not hurt these babies like I've been talking about. And I think I've always been a little bold. I think I've always not been afraid of a challenge because no one was in this space. You could have laughed at me at the beginning saying, oh, here's Dr. Marin. She thinks she can watch her brain develop with a drop of spit. I mean, there are lots of reasons you would have thought you shouldn't touch this. Um, but I thought, what if? What if you could do it? And who cares if you fail? And it turns out we're, we're right. You can do a lot. You sure can. Um, it's not always perfect. There are studies that don't always work, but we continue to advance the field. And I say we collectively of all the saliva investigators out there. Um, and I think it's in our future. I think medicine in the future will use this biofluid in some capacity to make diagnoses and assess. Yeah, that's, that's super exciting. I appreciate you sharing that, that story of, of, um, and, and that's a lot of research time. I mean, you, you, you spent a lot of time in the lab and, <laughs> and going through this. Um, that, that's absolutely amazing that you've gone through that. So um, we're going we're gonna to flip this a little bit to um, a fun part of this because you and I have some commonalities. And so for those who are watching on YouTube or some type of video part, I'm going to uh, change here for a moment. So just bear with me. Um, so. So Joe, we, we can say this little saying, right? Um, Lin Lin, the city of sin, you, you never come out the same way you came in. So um, Jill and I are both from the same hometown of Lynn, which if you don't know where Lynn is, it's the North shore of Boston. 
and uh and, and back then so i got my red Sox uh jacket on right now which i typically wear a sport coat we're doing doing this but this is this feels really good uh, i just want to let you know and and at the moment while we're recording this granted this is may of 2021 so um it's not gonna be reviewed until july but we're currently in first place so mm-hmm. go socks um and and one of the things that people don't understand i don't think nationally is that uh, i want to be careful of the statement here um in in many sports it, it, males tend to be the focus of it but in boston it is everyone yes i mean so i i sent you an email beforehand just to make sure you were a Sox fan and you're like a hundred percent I mean, that's fair to say, right? Like everybody, everybody, if you're going to live in Boston long, especially in Lynn, you know, we are Sox fans. You don't know anything different. I, even though I moved a long time ago to Northwest Oregon, where I live today, I still love the Sox. Um, and, and with that, and so behind me, Jill, is this uh, 2004 championship. So yeah. even though the Patriots, as we were also both fans of, won a Super Bowl. Matter of fact, they had basically won three by the time the Sox had won. Their, their but it was what eighty-five years or eighty-six years, right? The gap between. And so, my yaya, which is grandmother in Greek, um, she was born in nineteen nineteen, the year after the curse of the Bambino started, after Babe Ruth was traded to the Yankees. Where I can't believe I said that name. Apologize for that. Um, <laughs> and and so, she had lived her whole life watching every game. That she could when it came available on TV. Um, she'd smoke her two packs of cigarettes in each game, and she loved the socks. And she's Greek, um, came lived in was raised in Greece. And um, after the, the World Series, um, I called her up and I said, "Yeah, yeah, how was the game?" And she said, "Oh, Carl, you know, not Carl, El Carl." And she said, "I love. I was so happy." And she said, "I'm so happy. I now can die." Yeah. Well, it's funny. We we do have a lot in common. And when you're talking about this story, my grandfather was born in 1919. For the oh audience, and I are the same age. Um, he unfortunately never lived to see the Red Sox. And I remember him all growing up as a kid. He used to say, I just want to see him win before I die. I just want. And that's the kind of love that this town had, despite the heartache. And there was heartache in this town for 86 years. <laughs> <laughs> for 86 years there was heartache. <laughs> no and, and and what's it my she did not live to see the 2007 yeah she she literally it was in the last two years and and um it was it was her freedom it was she could she can now pass and and um and so yeah that is so interesting that you had that and i don't know if you remember as much but there was this almost disbelief after that first one like because once again, those who are familiar with Sox fans, we were still skeptical and didn't believe. And even though we we're happy, we're like, it, ah, this can't happen again. But then like it happened in 2007, it, we like see it finally relax. Again. <laughs> and again, exactly. And again. So yeah, so, so we've been a little spoiled. We're hoping for this year as well. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Always, always hopeful for that. We're just going to ignore last year. Um, yeah, you know, exactly. so that was pretty painful. Um, so, all right. So let me... Um, other personal side, obviously we have our commonalities being from, from the same city. So when people are in the forefront and, and our most guests we bring on have just done extraordinary things, you are no different uh, and, and actually have done incredible things that are beyond. How in the heck do you manage this from a, from on a personal side? 
you know, how are you keeping yourself in check and in balance so you can maintain that energy and that confidence on a regular basis? So t- tell me a little bit, just give us some insight on what you do to help get there. Yeah, you definitely need your escape. That's for sure. And you have to be good about the escape. Otherwise, you'll go nuts, I think. And, you know, there's some people that can do it around the clock. Um, we talked a little bit about exercise. I'm actually a huge Pelotoner. <laughs> I have uh, both the bike and the tread. I have the tread. Uh, in my house. And especially during the pandemic, that was an absolute lifesaver. I love um, taking my walks. I love to decorate. (laughs) That's a little creative outlet. I think you have all these like creative things that you like to do. Um, I grew up playing piano and I need to play it some more. I need to get back into that because I think nothing really relaxes you more than that. And you just play for yourself, um, not anyone else but just to have that um, for you. And when I can, I actually have to do a lot of reading every day. So sometimes I don't want to read anymore, but I do love a good book for sure. For sure. Hmm. Hmm. Um, you also mentioned you, you, I don't know if you still are running, you, you, you're still, you said you do several five or 10 Ks yeah, on a regular basis. Yeah, in the summer, I always try to do at least two to three, five Ks. And I keep going. This is my strategy, Carl. I've never won a race in my life. But I think if I keep going, God willing, and I'm healthy, when I'm 80, it's going to be my time. It's going to be my time. I'm going to win it then. Okay? So that's my goal. (laughs) (laughs) Every year, I just want to be like, so, you know, I mean, like, you know, 50s right around the corner. I'm like, I'm going to keep going. And you'd be amazed, right? If you go to your age group, you keep that strategy up. You're you're getting into the top 10. You just keep going, right? So you just got to show up. That's my motto. Just show up. Don't get obsessed about the time because the age is going to correct it for you. That is awesome. And clearly you're an achiever. If you just mentioned that, that you are uh, <laughs> still folks each year. I, I, I mentioned you, my, my, when I turn 50 in a few years from now, my goal mm-hmm. is to run the Boston marathon. Yeah. I'm trying to run my first marathon this year. And I failed multiple occasions to even run 10 miles, but I finally just did a couple of weeks ago. And um, let me clarify, actually this week. Um, and it was like, oh my gosh, I could do this. But what was funny about it was, uh, it's, it's amazing when you actually follow somebody with experience, uh, I'm doing the Hal Higdon marathon book where he's, mm-hmm. he's run 111 marathons and he ran seven marathons when he was the age of 70. And yeah. so it's like, um, it, it's funny. It's like, oh, it's amazing. It's working when you actually listen to somebody who knows what they're doing. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was, uh, anyways, it's been interesting to um, get that. I appreciate you sharing that of, of it's, it's an, once again, the consistency of people who guests have been on our show where they have found a way to get an outlet to help create that, the energy. Now you also mentioned you are a book reader and, and of course I love to ask people about their favorite books. Um, give, give us some insight of the type of books you like to read and, um, some favorites maybe that you have. Yeah, I feel so bad. I'm looking at all those nice books behind you. I, I honestly sometimes feel I'm the odd one out. I, I don't read a lot of, I don't read a lot of nonfiction. I don't read a lot of self-help. How do we get there? Um, and that's not to say I don't need it. I just love fiction and I love the escape and I love the creativity of it. And so I would say 95% of all books I ever read are fiction to escape. and I do think one, the reading makes me a better writer. So I said, I read a lot, but I have to write a lot. I'm writing a lot of scientific manuscripts and and grants. And so 
how one captures that audience, because even though it's a grant, you certainly have to capture your reviewer. I think fiction gets me there. So I, uh, I read my fiction. Now you had given a, is there some specific books you'd like to suggest of, I, I've written them down, but I don't, you, is there any, I don't know was any different ones that you said, you want to share some of those? Yeah. I mean, if you want, and I love all types, you know, sometimes I like my murder mystery. Sometimes I like my, you know, drama. Uh, one of the funniest books I've read recently. And if, if you, if people want a good laugh, it's Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. And that's written by Gail Honeyman and adored it just laughed out loud. I think I was in airport airport and couldn't stop laughing. Um, All the Light We Cannot See, uh, that won the Pulitzer. So many probably already know that. That's by Anthony Dewar. One of the great things about his book that I enjoy too is the parallel stories. So when an author can do that so well and tell parallel stories to tie in, it's really just extremely creative and I enjoy that. when the Crawdads Sing, I think that's just going to be made into a movie. So I sort of feel like I'm picking all the popular ones people will know about, but another fabulous book. And this is the medicine in me. Um, Dr. Mukherjee has actually written two amazing books. If, if you haven't read uh, The Emperor of All Maladies, which is the history of cancer. Now, the thing about that book is you look at it and it's this thick and you're I'm never reading that. He does such an amazing job of taking you through just the the powerful grip that that disease has had on humans for millennia, really. I mean, just thousands of years and why it still grips us today and why, although we've made great progress, uh, it's still one of the top pillars and it's fascinating. And I think PBS actually did a, several part documentary series on that if you don't feel like reading it. And then he went on to do the history of the gene. And I love the gene. And that would be (laughs) G-E-N-E, as in um, your DNA. And again, he just really has a gift of taking what could be dry in medicine and just make it so engaging. And that's what I love. And that's what I have to turn around and do. So I think I gravitate towards those types of books. I appreciate you sharing that because, yeah, I, I, I... Love it how you do read things that are different than the, the books that are behind me, right? You're, you're reading these things with stories. It, it's interesting, actually. One of my favorite books is actually Shoe Dog, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. And part of it is just his story, even though it's it's true, you know, it's a tr- you know based. But but I love the story parts, right? Because that resonates more and it's more interesting. Um, but I think the book she recommended my wife is going to actually like those ones better because she likes more, <laughs> more <laughs> of the fiction type books. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I appreciate those suggestions. Um, that's going to be fantastic. This has been truly an honor to have you on and a lot of fun because we both have this background. And um, I appreciate you mentioning the about the book about cancer. My sister is a small cell um, uh, small cell lung carcinoma survivor. And, and so um, I, I'm going to suggest that book to her to, to continue to give her confidence that she's actually going to be, she was in a podcast. Her name's Lisa Hardwick, also from Lynn. So we're going to have two Lynn yeah. guests, which is like, whoa, whoa, You're it's kind of weird. <laughs> that's right. We're going to, that's going to be asked next. Who is the next Lynn, you know, somebody from Lynn to, to include in the podcast. Um, but we just for everyone else. So this has been, uh, thank you so much, Jill. Uh, for this. We've been talking with Dr. Jill Marin from Tufts Medical Center. 
Uh, where can people learn more about you? Sure. So Dr. Jill Marin, Tufts Medical Center, or more importantly, the Mother Infant Research Institute at Tufts Medical Center. You can learn all about the exciting work we're doing at the Institute, um, my own lab, um, and see more of the science, which is what it's really all about. Thank you. Thank you. So, Jill, thank you so much. And, and thank you uh, to everyone else to listening to the Measure Success podcast, wishing you the very best at measuring your success. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.